0: Seafood is an incredibly nutritious protein, but there are a lot of well-documented problems with commercial fishing, from the destruction of ocean ecosystems to social injustices. Is this a big opportunity for aquaculture to provide a solution?
1: Only 5 to 15% of the seafood we eat is from the United States. The rest of it's imported.
0: That's Steve Sutton, founder of Transparency, which is an indoor shrimp farm, or prawns if you prefer, in Los Angeles County, California. His model of growing sustainable, high-quality domestic prawns is admirable, but are enough customers willing to pay a premium for it?
1: A lot of people look at what we're doing and they say, wow, shrimp farming in cities, you know, kind of like vertical basil farms and on top of my Whole Foods and stuff. It is very exciting. But is it the future? Building these in the cities like I've done? I'm not sure.
0: Whether it's in cities or in farm country, I have little doubt that farmed fish will continue to be a growing part of the future of agriculture.
1: Aquaculture at its core has the potential to be tremendous because the efficiency of these animals, they they reach neutral buoyancy on their own. They don't have to stand up and fight gravity. They have quick digestive tracts. They have a lot of things that make them great candidates for farming. We just have to figure out how to do it that keeps the product clean and the environment at minimal impact.
0: Indoor Shrimp Farming on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. I'm very pleased that this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Swap Maps, because when you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps variable rate technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value with swap maps. They're your trusted variable rate provider on millions of acres currently with a 98% retention rate. Swap Maps, they do variable rate right. Learn more at swapmaps.com. Uh, book a consultation or just check out more information that's swapmaps.com. But you don't have to take just my word for it. Listen to Tyler Kessler talk about how Swap Maps opened his eyes to the potential of variable rate and how it's worked for him as both a farmer and agronomy consultant working in southern Saskatchewan. I started being introduced into Swap Maps, and that really was the Kind of the turning point of, of where I believed it started to make sense for me. I could see it. It started making sense for the clients.
1: And it just, it was the base layer of if you, you're actually dealing with physical properties, you're not dealing with just yield maps. You're not dealing with imagery to try and, you know, market a scalable business. In our case, we've got 99%
0: retention. Anyone that has, that has tried it continues to increase their acres and, and they, they want more. Well, you can hear more from Tyler on our most recent field report episode, or you can learn more about Swap Maps at Swap And thank you once again to Swap Maps for supporting ag innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right. Now, back to today's featured conversation with Steve Sutton, founder and CEO of Transparency Farm in Southern California. I should mention, since this is all in audio, that Transparency is spelled T-R-A-N-S-P-A-R-E-N-T. S-E-A, all one word. So sea, like the ocean, it's kind of a fun, clever play on words there. Anyway, uh, I'm really excited to share this one with you. I personally became very interested in learning more about indoor aquaculture this past year. Uh, I came about sort of as I think about vertical farming for vegetables and leafy greens. Really, my biggest concern comes down to spending Big dollars as a farm on real estate, on technology, on energy and on labor only to produce a product that really isn't that valuable. And I'm sorry if that's offensive, but I mean that in terms of of dollars, uh, people aren't spending a whole lot of money on on leafy greens uh, and on just the nutrition of the product. There isn't any protein. There's there's not a whole lot of calories in there. It's it's sort of mostly Water And I'm not railing on it. I'm just saying that it's going to be hard to make that up in volume with all the investment on the front end. So why haven't we been talking more about indoor aquaculture, similar systems, similar investment, but uh, a product that is more worthy of of more dollars from the consumer and also has a whole lot more nutrition and of course protein so that was the question i was asking myself and as it turns out like most times when you you say why isn't anybody talking about this people have been talking about this a lot in fact Uh, and it's exciting but it does carry with it a lot of the same realities as all of indoor agriculture. It was super interesting to get into these realities with Steve on today's episode. Uh, So even if you're not interested in aquaculture at all, I do think this episode is worth listening to because the parallels to other farming systems are very, very evident. Uh, He also calls attention to some serious issues with labeling and the challenges of changing consumer behaviors that I think uh, are very, very important for anyone in a food related industry. So stand by. Uh, But first, a a bit of a primer on shrimp farming, Uh, shrimp and prawns. We're going to talk about the difference between the two in the episode. But uh, these little critters are delicious. They're nutritious, they're high in protein, and they're extremely versatile. And if you can't tell, I'm trying hard to not quote Bubba from Forrest Gump right here, but that's certainly what it calls to mind. There's so many things you could do with shrimp, Uh, but they're very, very efficient as well. They're ready to be harvested in just four months with a feed conversion ratio of about 1.4 pounds of feed for one pound of gain. For reference, that's better than all the other major proteins that you probably eat on a weekly basis, like chicken, pork, beef, etc. They also, if you're wondering about water, in a state like California, reuse pretty much all of their water. It's not quite to 100% yet, but it's going to be there very, very soon. You can also set up an indoor shrimp farm anywhere. Steve's is relatively close to the ocean, being in Southern California, but mostly that's just because it's close to the demand, close to the restaurants he sells to, etc. But he's making his own saltwater on site, as you're about to hear. Steve's background, after attending Columbia University, he spent a year on Wall Street before deciding that is not what he wanted to do with his life. Uh, Wanting to make an impact, he got very interested in marine life, in fisheries, in aquaculture, and that led to a master's in marine conservation and policy. From the university of miami and now a career in aquaculture that ultimately led him to starting transparency which has been in operation for about two years now i'm going to drop into the conversation here with steve sharing more of his background and some of the big challenges with the status quo today of importing all of this shrimp from commercial fishing And from these, uh, let's just put it nicely and call them less sustainable forms of shrimp farming that are happening in other countries in the world. Here's my conversation with Steve Sutton
1: of Transparency. You know, I bounced around like any young person does who's searching for their place to make an impact. That led me to work for a shellfish farm out of uh, school. So... I had an Ivy League degree, but I was picking clams off of a conveyor belt eight hours a day. But I worked my way up in that little company and ended up uh, managing their laboratory. And they got to kind of hook me up with the opportunity to work for the government. So I became a fisheries biologist for the government. So I was working with fisheries and and trying to help generate data and, and review data that helps fisheries governance in the United States to determine the health of the oceans when it comes to fish. So how much fish the fishermen should be allowed to catch this year, you know which stocks are doing well, which stocks are shrinking. And it was cool. It was fascinating and really important work. But I found that a lot of people were doing it already. It's, it's pretty competitive. You know, it's, a, it's a nice, stable job. We have government work. And um, our government protects our oceans pretty well. So the big moment was to realize that only 5 to 15% of the seafood we eat is from the United States. The rest of it's imported. So, 85 to 95%, depending on how you look at it, is imported. So, when I realized that, you know, the environmental issues are global. And our demand here that we generate can have a huge impact on the other side of the world. And when you start to think about it that way, it's like, well, our air is still going to get warmer. And, you know, we may protect our fisheries, but that's certainly not going to solve the problem, which is a growing planet. More protein is needed. And the way we're obtaining or creating protein now is. Not working right sustainably because this distribution chain and this demand for cheap, convenient seafood has really just dictated the world stage. So, the United States is the largest importer of shrimp in the world. So, that means I mean, it's, it's like over 93, 94% of our shrimp is imported, and most of that's farmed in Southeast Asia. You know, it's a commodity, so it, it goes up and down, but a growing amount right now is, is grown in Ecuador. And uh, yeah, I think people want a quick answer, they want to know what country should I buy from? And, and I can tell you, you know, statistically, the odds, you can look it up, less than 1% of the seafood coming into the country is inspected for shrimp. And um, of that 1%, the rejections over the last seven or eight years range from 4% to 18% of the products are rejected for a known substance that's illegal. Not to mention the bacteria that have evolved to deal with the Antibiotics, for example, that they sometimes use in farming. But at the end of the day, farm shrimp is grown in mangroves. And for those not familiar, mangroves are sort of, in my opinion, an unheralded resource that we just don't really talk about. So, around the equatorial belt of the ocean in the tropics and subtropics um, in the United States, you know, Florida, South Texas, you would find mangroves. And they're a tree and they're More roots than they are tree. So it's this short little tree that can grow to be pretty good size, but for the most part, it's an incredibly intricate root system. And they estimate that mangrove forests sequester more than double the amount of carbon through carbon dioxide than do tropical rainforests. And so when you look at it that way, you're like, wow, per hectare of land or or acre, whatever you use, we just have this incredible resource. And we've, we've cut down almost half of it in the world in the last 50 years. So a good portion of that, you know, estimated something like 25% of the loss is attributed to shrimp and fish farming. So when we think about that, we're just like, well, we got all these solutions out there, like let's create robots that fly into space and harvest carbon. And, you know, all these things that are being invested in, I'm not against them. I just think it's, it's wild that we're looking at the solution. Nature gives us a solution. And we've taken it away and we know it. It's, it, you can study it, it definitely sequesters carbon. Not to mention, it's a vital habitat for young shrimp, young fish. So, the more mangroves you have, the better your local fisheries will be. So, that's kind of what drives me to get up every day is, you know, mangroves are not sexy, but the habitats there are essential and we've just wiped them. You know, we're wiping less and less these days because people are aware of it and most governments are kind of cracking down to a degree. But at the same time, we're wiping less and less because there's less to be wiped. We already murdered a lot of it. And so to me, that drives us to think way outside the box and try to put shrimp farms indoors.
0: Oh, I love that context. yeah, and i and I think you know when you consider that preserving mangroves, preserving ocean ecosystems, it does make you think like farming is the answer. But I also know you know fish farming and specifically shrimp farming uh has carried this stigma with it how do you convince you know people that that shrimp farming yes might be part of the problem historically but also can be now part of the solution
1: yeah that's a really good good question and it comes up a lot so to start to answer it i would say first let's just segue a tiny bit and look at wild shrimp fishing so wild fishing it's the last bastion for you know other than like local mushroom foraging or that kind of thing deer hunting right like it's the last common ground that we can all go and hunt in, at scale. And I mean, wars have been fought over it. Lives have been lost. It's not only dangerous, but it's political. And to to imagine and look, I love fishing. If I if nothing else existed and mattered, I would just be a fisherman, hundred percent, no doubt about it. But like I said, I I felt like I had a good a good start to my life, and I need to try to make some sort of impact. So when you realize that. Trawling nets through the ocean or drifting nets through the ocean kills about 67 billion pounds a year of other sea life other than the intended catch. So that's pretty stunning because, again, not all of that is going to be edible, right? Some of that is, is plant matter that is edible, but we don't really eat it. Some of that is species of fish that aren't valued, right? But they're probably edible. They're just not valued. So it's a murky subject and whatever, but the point is we have to do better than that. That just can't be the way we produce fish. Now, if you look at shrimp as a subset, as I move into answering your question, you don't have to be a biologist or a scientist. You can figure this out yourself. I've worked on shrimp fishing boats, but you're looking for a small animal that typically doesn't bite a hook. So you use a net. The net has to be very small because shrimp are pretty small. So now you've got a really small net and you're trawling it for miles and miles, typically on the bottom of the ocean, it's almost always a bottom fishery. And you're just dredging up all the stored carbon that was there, all the, any, any corals, any plants, any sponges, right? So, you're ripping all that up. You're basically lawnmowing at the bottom, not even, you're, you're like somewhere between a lawnmower and a rototiller on the bottom of the ocean. And you do that for 8 to 12 hours while the crew sleeps and you wake up, pull the net, Dump it on deck, sort everything out, and anything that's not a shrimp or that you have a permit to land, you shovel it overboard. Fishermen don't like me so much anymore because I think they misunderstand it's fishing and farming are both going to be necessary to solve this deficiency we're going to face, but both have to be done in better ways than than we've done them. So when it comes to farming as a solution, shrimp farming has been done without much control. you know i I like to say you know historically it was kind of a, a gold rush, so governments and universities and individuals started to figure out how to farm shrimp. And they started by collecting it from the wild and putting it in ponds that were being filled by the ocean tide. So the tide comes in off the, up the river, or off the coast, and you dam it up. That is still to this day the majority of the way shrimp is farmed. Almost every pound, lead. any pound you could find is farmed that way. So yes, improvements have been made in the industry in 60 years. We're destroying less habitat than we used to destroy. But even the habitats that are there, it doesn't matter to me if, if Farmer John is the one who destroyed it, if it was Farmer Robert, his father, or his grandfather, Farmer Michael. Like, I don't really care who did it. It's just that land, if it's capable of being a carbon sink of the utmost proportions, then that's what it should be. And we should find another way to produce whatever's being produced in that space. So that's really my argument. It's not against farmers. I mean, I... I Got a lot of love for farmers that I met in Thailand and worked with, and a lot of respect. It's not their fault. It is kind of partially their responsibility. And I say the same thing about the demand in the United States. Our demand in Europe and the United States, especially the United States, for cheap, convenient shrimp. We want it peeled. We want it cooked. We just want to dump it in the pan after work and go watch reality TV. Like that is driving them to produce it by hook or by crook. Like, however, they got to produce it, they have to produce it for so cheap. And The problem the world's facing right now has happened before. There's a glut of production. COVID kind of messed everything up, and then people overproduced. You can't sell it all right now. The price is plummeting, and the people in the distribution chain between the farmer or fisher and the restaurant—they all make money. The fisher and the farmer is going to miss out, which is twisted in my head. And then the restaurant, you know, has a tough job of feast or famine, where they may or may not make money. So to me, it's just a systematic it's a defunct system.
0: And and we are seeing that, you know, that, that glut, that hopefully temporary glut uh, happening in a lot of agricultural commodities right now coming out of the supply chain issues of COVID and uh, restaurant shutdowns. I, I'm sure it, it compounded things for a product like shrimp as well. But yeah, no, a lot of parallels here between seafood and shrimp farming and, and other farming that we talked about, other products as well. Um, so I know that there are, saltwater and freshwater shrimp farms, Uh, which are you and and does that just basically a a result of sort of like the species and the uh, availability of land and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Great question. So there's over 2000 species of shrimp and prawns in the world and, you know, probably hundreds of them have economic value for human consumption, but only a few are farmed. You know, it's it's probably like how it started with, with cattle um, or, you know, Wild chickens, whatever that looked like a long time ago. But, anyways, I'll talk about what I know and not about what I don't know. There are a few species that are farmed, and uh, the high value that we talk about is like if we're going to do something indoors, we've got to do it efficiently, we've got to do it in a controlled manner so the disease is not a realistic, frequent threat like it is outside. And um, to do that, we need to start, in my opinion, with a species that's well supported. So, we are building this on the backs of Forty or fifty years of R and D, genetics work, uh, feed trials, everything that people learned in outdoor farming, we're applying and working with. So for me, that only leaves us a couple species. And then when you think about high value, and those that are more likely to be omnivorous to reduce our impact, that leaves me with white leg Pacific prawn, commonly known as white shrimp in the grocery store. And that's an interesting thing too. Is like if I start selling out of state from California, the USDA will make me call my product white shrimp, even though, I mean, I'm a biologist, like it is definitely not a shrimp. It's a prawn. It's white leg prawn. So it's, it's a funny, funny situation and obviously, you know, we'll play within the boundaries, but it's worth noting that uh, we grow a commonly found prawn, but we grow it in a very different way than anybody else does for the most part.
0: And, and why is that shrimp prawn distinction important to you? Talk about that from, from your perspective.
1: Yeah, great question. So to be honest, it's not important to me. Um, I say shrimp and prawn interchangeably. When we talk to people in our industry, it's the shrimp industry. You know, when we joke about our slogans at the farm, shrimping ain't easy, right? Like, so it's, it's fine. When I talk to my team, we talk about how many shrimp did you move from that tank. But I do like to point out like on tours or when I talk to people about the, the bigger picture, It just is a sign of how arbitrary our world of seafood has become. You can call anything, anything, and there's no recourse. And that, to me, just opens the door for a lot of problems. So, yes, we have more certification boards and third-party certifiers than ever. You know, Whole Foods has their own. There's ones that are third-party. And as a consumer, which I also am, it's confusing. I, I know a lot about this industry. I don't know everything. But even I go to the store and I scratch my head. I'm like, did I buy something that contributed to the problem or the solution? I really don't know. And so, prawns and shrimp are different creatures. They evolved differently a, a while ago. They look similar. They have a lot in common. And again, personally, I don't really care if you're buying sustainable prawns or sustainable shrimp. I won't get into the differences if unless you want me to. But basically, the differences are based around their gills are different, but also the way they reproduce is different. So, their body shape is different. True. Prawns, like what we grow, white lake prawns, are going to be more elongated. They're going to have more tail meat and a smaller head relative to true shrimp. And if anyone's in California or familiar all the way to Alaska with a California spot prawn, it's actually a spot shrimp. But prawn sounds fancy and you can get more money for a prawn than you can a shrimp. And that's why it's called prawns.
0: Very interesting. And, and so this is kind of a probably a silly question, but I, I'm just curious: Do you get the salt water for your farm from the sea, or or because you're not Downey? I don't think is on the coast, is it?
1: Yeah, we are not. We are inland, ten to fifteen miles inland. Uh We make our own salt water, and so that's kind of part of part of the mission here. I mean, I thought that putting this business in Downey. I mean, obviously, I thought it would succeed. I was, you know, a little naive at how hard it would be but I believed and I still believe this will succeed and I'm gonna make it succeed and our team's gonna now make it succeed. But honestly, if I failed, I wanted to fail kinda quickly and just you know realize that I was wrong. So one of the things we did is put it here in Downey Inland to demonstrate that you can do this almost anywhere. So anywhere that you have shipping, that you have power and you have a source of water, you can do this. So you can filter the water if you need to. If it has chloramines in it, you can treat it with a carbon block. You can do a bunch of different things. We do it all the time. We do it when we make beer. We do it when we make soda. Like it's done in wastewater treatment facilities. So we're just kind of borrowing that and saying, look, we've got a water source. It happens to be, we ended up in Downey where there's well water. We gently filter that water. Not We don't do much to it. It's drinking water. And then we recycle 99.6% of it. That's where we are today. We started around 96%, 97%. And in two years, we've gotten up to, I think this is probably the max for this building. But, anyways, we add salts. Basically, what we're doing is creating an ocean indoors. And then we have to manage that ocean. And since we don't grow, you know, whales and snails and seaweed and all of the things that keep nature and its magnificent complexity in balance. We have to adjust, you know, we have to kind of play God a little bit with that ocean. So we add certain salts that the shrimp will use, certain minerals and salts the shrimp use disproportionately more of, for example, shrimp make shells and then they jump out of their shells basically and harden to make the next shell. That's how they grow. So that shell is composed of something that's coming out of the system. And so we have to make sure we're replenishing that. So we make our own salt blend and then we reuse almost all of that water. Our next farm that we're looking to build, hopefully sometime starting next year, will, will be 100% reuse. So we'll be growing seaweed with that little bit of wastewater. We'll use that to grow seaweed in the backyard. California sunshine, California seaweed. All you got to do is add aeration pretty much, pump it back, and we'll reuse all of our water.
0: Wow. So And then uh, is the seaweed a separate revenue source or is that, does that go to feed or something? Or
1: Exactly. So you know, I'm, I'm trying to be careful to um, – it's really fun to be a scientist and think about all of the things that we could do. And it's fun to get excited, to get investors riled up about look at all these revenue streams. But when the rubber meets the road, it's farming. And anybody who knows a bit about farming knows that you should probably make your changes slowly and don't assume too much because these are living things and the law of unintended consequences always pops up. So that said, you know, we've grown seaweed before, both myself and my partner dug in, in the past. And um, we're going to grow it. We're going to feed some of it back to the prawns. So that's going to allow us to reduce our footprint and bring up the flavor profile a little bit. I mean, I think they're, they're very delicious right now, but creating a little more complexity, hopefully even elevate the omega-3s a little higher. And again, lower our footprint, allow us to reuse more water. Then once we've done that, we'll start to tinker with it and see if we can get the quality of the seaweed to be human grade so that not that it's unsafe for humans at all but humans expect a certain flavor in seaweed and it's very specific and that comes with the ocean tide you know so that's going to be something that we tweak and hopefully yeah it becomes maybe we can do dried seaweed chips like an eco-friendly value-added product something like that in the future so yeah absolutely you nailed it
0: yeah no i love it and will that second facility be there in the la area as well
1: Uh, No, at this point, we're looking to be somewhere between LA and San Francisco. But that's kind of just a starting point. We'll see where we go. You know, the name's Transparency, and we're trying to keep this something that's accessible to people. If we don't grow the market and the awareness about what we're trying to do, and and the fact that it's just a cleaner product guaranteed for your family to eat, then um, we don't grow the market. This is going to be an uphill slog for a long time. So, but that being said, growing the market is a very ambitious undertaking and not one that a lot of investors want to jump into and rightly so like changing consumer habits takes time, takes a lot of money, takes media takes a lot of things to come together. And so for us we know there's a consumer base out there who have been waiting for like a domestic US made clear transparent, delicious fresh product. We know that that market is is sizable, much bigger than what we're serving today. but we also hope that we can keep in the public eye enough, that you know we're in a location that somewhat people pass through they, they can do tours uh, we can continue to educate chefs and consumers at our next facility so that kind of puts me yeah between San Francisco and LA those would be our two biggest markets and we'll we'll see where we go from there
0: right and i'm sure you have people who just meet you on the street and say hey well i want to go you know i want to buy your prawns can i just buy some direct to consumer uh is that something that that you are looking to do in the future
1: yeah we do it now honestly you can you can buy prawns at our farm in Downey but um You pre-order and pick them up. We have one farmer's market in Santa Monica on Wednesdays. Retail is a complicated beast, and I'm trying to be humble enough to approach it with respect and uh, not spend a bunch of money and resources selling one pound at a time, even though I believe that's what's going to drive the change at the end of the day. If we become a big thing or not, half of it's going to be on us to figure out ways to reduce the cost and the footprint to get to carbon neutral and basically be very cost competitive, or at least a slight premium and not an exaggerated premium like we are today. But yeah, we, we do sell it at the farm, but I haven't pushed on that retail side yet. Also, one thing is I think convenience is a big factor in our lives. And a lot of people don't want to deal with a whole shrimp. And right now that's all we do is we do whole prawns. Um, that's where the flavor is in the head. And this is an interesting topic too, if we don't mind a segue here. But the, uh, the head of the prawn is an interesting thing to think about because it's really the body. So that's where the organs are. The tail is what we eat typically. And the heads are left, you know, at the farm of origin or the processing facility in a different country typically. And so that's because the heads go bad quickly. Um, so you take the head off, now the tail lasts longer, then you treat it, almost all shrimp is treated or preserved in some way, almost all of it. Not all, but almost all. So you've got this head of a shrimp, which comes out to for our species, a little less than 40% of the weight of the animal. And for us, you know, expensive production method to start and we're, we're tuning it. But we can't really just afford to throw that in the garbage, nor should we, because the head contains most of the fats. So shrimp prawns have an organ called hepatopancreas, and it's not an organ that humans have, but it's a big oil globule, basically. And that's where the fats and lipids are. And sure, as you know, when it comes to beef and pork, the fat striation throughout the muscle is one of the things that drives the price right like that wagyu that's super marbled and fat distribution is incredible there's more to it of course but that's what we're looking for that flavor and in shrimp the tail is just a lean it's a lean muscle the flavors in the head the omega 3 fatty acids they live in the head so for us we're kind of trying to say look we understand that there's a huge market for peeled shrimp and we'll get there but we need to bring our costs down learn about this, get some solid footing under us in terms of, you know, investment and really be in a strong place. And then we've already got the equipment ready to go. We've got this great company that's automated peeling to reduce the labor costs and we'll go there. But yeah, part of it is, it's, it's a lot of education and people so far on a small scale have really taken to it. They're like, I didn't know you could eat the head, you know, so we have Michelin star restaurants serving head on shrimp and they come back and the whole, the whole plate is clean. I don't know how that'll scale, but. We're going to work on it, and uh, eventually we'll get to peeling.
0: Yeah, and it was just never really an option because all of our shrimp was basically imported, right?
1: Amazing. Great question. Yeah. The heads have been left overseas, and they probably should be. Because remember, I said that's where the fat is. Fat is what bioaccumulates the bad stuff, too. So any heavy metals, pesticides, stuff like that is going to be more concentrated in the head. So we've probably been better off to leave them.
0: And I already think I know the answer to this, but let's call it out. you know, in your process, you add the salts, obviously, for the salt water, but but no additional chemicals or or antibiotics in the process.
1: Nope. We occasionally do some water buffering. We we really grow shrimp and we grow bacteria, and sometimes when certain bacterial filters, we have multiple filters that are full of uh, bacteria that we grow that process the shrimp waste, and certain bacteria sometimes get a little out of whack, and we have to tune that filter. In the meantime, while we're kind of getting them back because they're living filters. We will add sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, uh, occasionally sodium carbonate, soda ash, and, and that's about it. Otherwise, it's just salts, uh, whether it's a magnesium salt, calcium salt, sodium salt.
0: Gotcha. We well, have some great video profiles on YouTube that I've watched and, you know, watching you kind of drag the net and pull up some prawns and just how uh, healthy and vibrant and, I don't know, just, just, uh, active they are is pretty cool. I mean, and I, and I know on at least one of the videos, you said, you know, that's a sign of, of a healthy prawn, right? When it's not docile, it's not half asleep, it's it's uh, really active. And so, I mean, I don't know, it, to me, it feels like quality that, that you can see when you see something like that. And uh, I don't know, I, I just wanted to call that out because people obviously can't see anything as they're listening to us here. But I encourage you to go watch some of those videos on YouTube and I'll link to a couple of them there. So right now with feed, are you, are you just buying commercial feed that's formulated for prawns?
1: Yeah. So there's a big, obviously, enormous global industry and a lot of money to be made and a lot of developments that have come over time. So given we grow about 1,000 pounds of shrimp a week, some farms in the world, I mean, probably grow definitely hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. So we're really small and we don't have much buying power. But that said, We started with the largest, you know, the best producer in the United States of feed. It's the most expensive feed. They definitely react when their customers say that they care more about sustainability. They're trying over the long term to be more sustainable. So we use a formulated shrimp feed. It's made in Pennsylvania. And uh, we have some ideas about alterations we'd like to make to the feed or supplementations, like I mentioned, seaweed and a few others. But yeah, it's 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 a feed we can stand behind. But I think feed is a place where invariably there's so much progress to be made. These prawns are omnivores. So white leg prawn, more so than a tiger prawn, more so than a freshwater prawn are happy to eat decaying plant matter. So that allows us to put some plant matter into their feed. Obviously, you got to be careful that you don't change the flavor. You want them to be healthy. We're not in the business of raising animals that barely survive or anything. We want them to be healthy. We want that matter to be digestible. Right, So there's a lot that goes into feed and you're trying to strike a balance between efficiency with resources. You're not just going to feed them pure fish. They're not even going to use most of that. Right? It'd be like if we just ate steak only. Right, So we have to strike that balance with feed companies. And then over time, I think that there's a lot of innovation. Right now, There's, let's say there's a big push for, for example, um, black soldier fly larvae to start with. That has a lot of similar profiles that could be supplemented and put in the shrimp feed and could serve a great feed. I mean, these guys will eat spinach. Like, they'll absolutely eat black soldier fly larvae. I have some on the shelf over there. So, that's something where it's like, wow, if that was a renewable source of feed, because some black soldier fly larvae is grown with like uh, wood products and some of it's grown with food scraps. If they figure out the food scraps model and they make it more affordable, as there are people, a lot of people are working on, that could be a, an affordable, local, low food miles, reduce waste. I mean, Really a win-win-win situation. And it would never replace shrimp feed, in my opinion, completely. But it could be 5%. And that's 5% less fish meal we'd have to use. So that's one example of the way that I approach the feed issue. There's a lot of gains to be made. Right now, though, you can't just go and say, I want to have the lowest carbon footprint on my feed only. And all your shrimp tastes like cucumbers and they die. Like, Then the, the whole mission is is undermined.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's got to be. High quality, top quality, incremental,
1: Um, incremental change
0: makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, talking about kind of the circular, the circularity of this opportunity, like with black soldier, eating food waste and then, you know, going to feed shrimp. uh, How do you handle your your biosolids? I'm sure that there's some biosolids that come through the process as a result. So is that high value fertilizer or is that that just kind of just uh, part of the waste of the process at this point?
1: Yeah, so it pains me to say that at this building, that that sort of liquid gold fertilizer material is discharged and is monitored by LA County. And uh, so we actually pay to get rid of it. And it's, it's a small amount, right? It's gallons a day. It's not, it's not like thousands of tons or something. The, there's just not enough room here. I have a lot to prove. I mean, basically, we start from 12-day-old shrimp all the way to delivering to the restaurant or to the consumer. And that's most of the chain. And so I just felt like if I tried to vertically integrate all the way on day one, that we would fall short. Um, So don't have space here, but the good news is the next farm is exactly what you said. So that fertilizer is coming out, right? It is high in nitrate. So it's already been digested by bacteria. And then it can be filtered, pressed, You we'll add a carbon source. So hopefully we can find a local waste carbon adjust our, you know, carbon nitrogen ratios to where they need to be. And then we'll have a really good base for a for a fertilizer soil amendment type deal to, you know, hopefully sell at a at cost to local farmers. Uh, we expect based on the crustaceans used in other fertilizers that it might be good for berry farmers in particular. But again, that's just kind of anecdotal just from conversations.
0: Yeah. Well the nice thing about Southern California is you got kind of farmers of all all sorts within within range um that's
1: that's a really sorry to interrupt you that. i just really wanted to say that's a really good thing to point out because people think of southern california and they're like oh it's expensive it's crowded it has all these issues right and then you're like yeah but if you go even to ventura like you're in farm country you know you go south and you're in like there's vineyards and there's farm country south so you just got to go inland a little bit it's also as everybody knows it produces more vegetables and fruit than anywhere else but for us like the next step a lot of people look at what we're doing and they say wow shrimp farming in cities you know kind of like vertical basil farms in on top of my whole foods and stuff but like it is very exciting it's not that it's not promising and it's certainly interesting but is it the future building these in the cities like I've done I'm not sure agriculture has made so much progress and it has so many moving parts that I think that our next steps would be a little I think it'd be a little foolhardy to just pay high rents to be close to our markets when we could be, instead of right now, we're serving a 30 mile radius around our farm. Well, we serve a 300 mile radius. It's certainly a little bit of a carbon give back, but it is much better than the 8,000 to 12,000 miles that shrimp travel on average once they're harvested today. So for us, like a more practical approach that we can build off the back of the local relationships Permitting, zoning, sales streams, contacts that farmers have built over centuries that if we can build off of those as our next step, I think we'd be much wiser and then see where we go from there. It's not to say that it couldn't be another farm in a city, but to scale this, we've got to compete cost-wise and the way you're going to do that is on ag land.
0: Man, what a great place to end right there, Steve. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. I uh, I really could ask you questions for uh, at least another hour on this stuff because I do find it very interesting, but uh, thanks for doing this.
1: No, oh, thanks so much. I mean, those questions were honestly, they were, they were all the good ones. So great, great work.
0: Well, as you can probably tell, that is something I'm very, very interested in. And uh, I know this is different from our normal content here. It's a very unique story about the future of agriculture, but Certainly a story about the future of agriculture. Nonetheless, I do consider aquaculture a part of agriculture and uh, one that we definitely um, should include in the conversation. And I hope to do more episodes along these lines in the future as well. So thank you so much for Steve, for taking the time. Uh, Thank you for listening all the way to the end here. Thank you to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And last but never least, thank you for your time and your attention. I do not take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story
1: of ag innovation.